0: Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to An Echo of Glory. A 200% podcast.
1: Hello everybody, and welcome to the 14th episode of An Echo of Glory a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series, I'll be telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game here from the mob game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. In May 1985, all of football's violence and neglect came home to roost in the most terrible way possible. Over the course of just 18 days, 96 people were killed at football matches involving English clubs. The culmination of years of deteriorating behaviour and facilities. All watched over by, it turned out, governors who didn't really have an alternative plan for when things went truly wrong. This is a story of St Andrews, of Valley Parade and of the Heysel Stadium. This is a story of English football in May 1985. In the place of things, there wasn't a great deal to be enthused about going into the last day of the 1984-85 football league season, on the 11th of May 1985. Three of the four divisions had already had their champions decided, with only Oxford United going into it needing a win to lift the title, whilst only one promotion place, the third position in Division Two, was up for grabs. For Birmingham City. Promotion back to the 1st Division had already been secured, and a win might even have seen them promoted as champions, whilst their visitors to St Andrews that day, Leeds United, had been relegated three years earlier, and had seldom looked like making a quick return since then. They were stuck just below the chasing pack on that final promotion place. On any other weekend, What happened at St Andrews would have dominated the national press the following day, but the fact that it didn't doesn't diminish what happened there. The supporters of both clubs had a terrible reputation and it might be reasonable to ask what was going on in the heads of planners who arranged this particular fixture for the last day of the season. None of this, however, excuses the behaviour of hundreds, possibly thousands, of supporters from both sides who fought pitched battles before, during and after Birmingham's 1-0 win. Continual charges by the police, including several on horseback, kept the fans apart as the battle continually flowed throughout the match. Seats were torn up and bottles hurled at police. A refreshment bar was set on fire and wrecked. Football in this country had been flying by the seat of its pants for years over hooliganism. A Blackpool supporter was stabbed to death on the terraces during a match at Bloomfield Road on the opening day of the 1974-75 season. Two supporters were killed in 1981 when a wall collapsed at Ayrson Park after supporters broke down a turnstile. In the same year... Overcrowding at Hillsborough during an FA Cup semi-final between Tottenham Hotspur and Wolverhampton Wanderers led to the crowd spilling onto the pitch, with disaster only being narrowly avoided. But that luck, such as it was considering the previous deaths, was running out. A charge to clear Leeds supporters proved a step too far for the crumbling stadium. A 12-foot high wall collapsed. 15-year-old Ian Hanbridge from Northampton was attending his first match with friends. He was believed to have been sheltering from the fighting underneath the wall when it collapsed on top of him. He suffered serious head injuries and died at Smethwick Neurological Hospital the following day. In all, 145 policemen were injured. 40 fans were treated at East Birmingham Hospital and a dozen more at the Birmingham Accident Hospital. It was described by those present as the worst crowd violence they'd ever seen inside a football stadium. The subsequent inquiry found that National Front leaflets had been found amongst the wreckage of the away end, that alcohol was a substantial contributor to the violence, and that trouble could have been avoided if police had cleared Leeds fans from the refreshment area. Birmingham City were fined £5,000 by the Football Association for failing to take adequate measures to prevent crowd trouble. Leeds United, meanwhile, were told that the following season's away games had to be ticket-only for named fans. But even everything that happened at St Andrews that day was dwarfed by what happened 125 miles to the north at Valley Parade in Bradford. There was something of a party atmosphere around Valley Parade that day, The club had just been crowned the third division champions a few days earlier and their captain, Peter Jackson, was presented with the trophy before kick-off. The crowd of a shade over 11,000 people was their best of the season and more than double their average for the season. The match itself seemed to be taking second place to the celebrations. Just before half-time though, and with the score still goalless, Yorkshire television commentator John Helm spotted smoke coming from one end of the stand.
0: We've actually got a fire in the stand on the far side of the ground. And that looks very nasty indeed. Now the police have gone over there to try and quell uh, the fire and they're frantically getting some of the supporters out. Now these are extraordinary scenes at Valley Parade. It's supposed to be a day of celebration. One hopes the stand doesn't burn down. And the game has obviously had to stop saw the smoke about a minute ago but now that fire is beginning to rage and the police are doing a tremendous job in getting people out of the stand and onto the pitch but a day of triumph could turn into a day of disaster here for Bradford These quite astonishing scenes and I've just seen the police leading a couple of people out of the ground. And the smoke is now engulfing the pitch at one end. As that blaze grows, the stand has to be in jeopardy.
1: Within minutes, the stand's bitumen and tar roof had caught fire and the whole construction became engulfed in a flash fire. Many of the crowd had come onto the pitch several of them on fire. The majority of deaths came at the back of the stand, where fans had rushed for the fire exits, only to find them locked to prevent people without tickets from getting into the ground in the first place. 56 people, 54 Bradford City supporters and two Lincoln City supporters, died. The resultant inquiry was chaired by Lord Chief Justice Popplewell, and his report covered both this and the St Andrews riot. This report from ITV News three days afterwards shows how it was discussed in the national media in the immediate aftermath.
2: The news at 5.45 with Martin Lewis. The football fire judge says he's hunting the facts, not deciding who's to blame. Good evening. The High Court judge heading the inquiry into the Bradford fire has said he won't be handing out any blame for Saturday's disaster. Mr. Justice Popplewell said he'd come to Bradford to look, learn, and listen. Police now believe 52 people died. They included 12-year-old soccer-mad twins Richard and Robert Ormondroyd, killed beside their father, Gerald. Another missing man has been found safe. Three teams of plastic surgeons are operating on the injured. After a briefing from senior police and fire officers, Mr. Justice Popplewell went straight to the stadium. Club chairman Stafford Hagginbottom pointed out the corner of the stand where the fire had started. The judge confessed he was horrified. His job will not be to point an accusing finger. The judge said the inquiry was designed to improve safety standards at sports grounds in general. Club officials have refused to talk today about the mystery letter from the county council last summer, which voiced concern over fire safety cover at the ground. So was this something the judge would look into? Obviously something um, which will arise in the inquiry. What conclusion we'll come to, we'll have to see when we hear it all. This morning, club secretary Terry Newman picked up the mail before leaving. The letter had been sent to him last July, but there's no record of it arriving at the club. And as police continued their search of the rubble, the assistant chief constable announced the letter was now part of his inquiries. I'm, I'm going to look right into this, and then I am going to decide whether it is thought that it is for me to discuss that with you or whether it's for someone else. And I'll look at it, and, and uh, when it's been decided, who or what. I mean, I understand that the chairman of the club has said that he regards that matter as sub judice. Now, I'm not saying that I agree or disagree with that, but certainly, if that's what he feels, I certainly would want to look at at the situation. But I will look at it. I'm not going to duck it. I'll come back to you on it. During the day, fans, relatives and friends of the dead and injured have been to the ground to pay their respects. Outside the turnstiles where many people died trying to break down locked gates, a small memorial of flowers has gradually built up. These four schoolgirls had friends who died here At this gate, a small memorial to a father and his twin sons who all perished. This woman's husband escaped. She came with the family this morning to give thanks. The inscriptions are simple but touching. Colin Baker, ITN, Brantford.
1: Popplewell determined that the cause of the fire had been a cigarette, discarded into a polystyrene cup, which had fallen between wooden floorboards which had shrunk with age. "'igniting years of accumulated rubbish below. "'At the time that the disaster was fresh in the mine, though, "'none of this was known. "'Many bodies were found trapped at the back of the stand, "'next to locked emergency exits. "'The area below the stand hadn't been cleared for years. "'A peanut wrapper with a pre-decimal price on it, "'dating it by definition as coming from prior to the start of 1971, and a newspaper from 1968 were found unburnt amongst the ashes afterwards, meaning that the stand had effectively been a massive bonfire waiting for somebody to light it for decades. It's important to iterate at this point that Bradford City were not especially negligent in this respect by the standards of the time. Clubs, in particular lower division clubs, simply didn't have the money or the will to spend money on this sort of thing when every season was a battle to simply keep afloat. One of the saddest ironies of the Bradford Fire is that the club already knew that there were issues with the mainstand's safety. The accumulation of rubbish was noted by the writer Simon Inglis in his 1983 book The Football Grounds of England and Wales. The club was even set to do something about it. The steel for a new roof was already just behind the stands that caught fire on that day, and work had been due to commence on it just two days later. The effect on British football was widespread. Prior to the Bradford disaster, football grounds in Britain had, from a safety perspective, been governed by the Safety of Sports Grounds Act of 1975, which determined that football grounds would have to be designated Meaning that they would be subject to licensing conditions covered by a document called the Green Code, the problem with this law was in the holes that were contained within it when the first introduced. it only applied to clubs in the English First Division and the Scottish Premier Division with a capacity of over ten thousand. It was extended in nineteen seventy nine to cover clubs of the second division as well by nineteen eighty three 50 clubs in the football league, 44 in the top two divisions and the six in the bottom two divisions that had been relegated since the introduction of the Act had safety certificates. But further expansion of this was fiercely resisted by clubs themselves. By May 1985, the process of expanding the licensing scheme had stalled. Valley Parade was not licensed by this time. In 1983... Chairman Stafford Higginbottom had rescued the club from receivership after it collapsed with debts of £375,000. There was little spare money to spend on ground improvements. The club had, it later emerged, first been warned about the accumulation of litter under the stand in 1980 after a visit from the Health and Safety Executive of West Yorkshire County Council when an inspector recommended that the gaps between the seats be blocked off. However, as the club was not in the 1st or 2nd Division of the Football League at the time, it was not legally required to see these changes through, and the council had no authority to make them carry them out. A further inspection of the ground carried out in 1984, because the club was looking to make a claim to the Football Foundation for funding for ground improvements, repeated the warning, but again they were not followed up. In January 1985, Bradford received its funding from the Football Foundation and two months later it took delivery of the materials to start work on the new main stand. In August 1985, the provision of the Act was finally extended to the remainder of the clubs of the Football League with a capacity of over 10,000, with predictable results. By the following year, Only Torquay United of the 92 clubs of the Football League and a handful of clubs in the lower divisions of the Scottish Football League remained exempt on account of their size. At a time when crowds were at their lowest in decades, small clubs were faced with the prospect of expensive repairs or closing off stands or terraces which didn't pass muster. Across the country, clubs found that they failed the test. Two stands at Wolverhampton Wanderers Molyneux were closed, and this was far from the only club to fall foul of tighter regulation. By the start of the 1985-86 season, 27 clubs had stands or terraces closed and their capacities reduced. Fifteen had at least one end or side of their ground completely closed off altogether. By the midsummer of 1985, the press had begun to roll back out of town and the people of the City of Bradford were left to reflect. Had this one particular stand really been that much more of a safety concern than many others the length and breadth of the nation? In the City of Bradford itself, a question mark hung over the future of Bradford City AFC itself. Once the small matter of the fact that the club had to continue had been confirmed... There remained the somewhat trickier issue of where it would play its home league matches for the foreseeable future. The wreckage of the main stand at Valley Parade made it unusable, and even if it had somehow been able to be roped off to play in front of what remained of it, it was surely not appropriate for supporters to have to return to such a visible reminder of such a terrible tragedy. There were some, perhaps many, who felt that Bradford City shouldn't return to Valley Parade at all, that the pain of going back might be too much to bear, that the costs of rebuilding the stadium couldn't erase the memories of that day. Those of that persuasion had an ally in the local council, who had an alternative venue lined up for the club in the form of Odsall Stadium, the home of Bradford Northern Rugby Football League Club. Built in 1933 and opened the following year, Oddsall was known as the Wembley of the North. Its record attendance for the 1954 Rugby League Challenge Cup final replay between Halifax and Warrington was 102,569 people and the stadium had recently undergone extensive renovation work ahead of hosting the 1985 World Speedway Championships. Still though, renovation for a Speedway tournament was very different to the renovation required in order to host professional football and a further £1 million was put into bringing Oddsall up to scratch for Bradford City to use. Segregation fences were erected on the main stand side and 1,000 uncovered seats were bolted onto the terracing on the other side of the ground. Bradford began the following season playing their home matches at Leeds United's Ellen Road and Huddersfield Town's Leeds Road, while these improvements were completed. Oddsall was certainly the local council's preferred destination for the club to return home, and after a safety inspection held in September 1985, the ground was deemed safe to use for league football. This, however, was quite a different question to that of whether it was suitable for league football, and it soon became clear that the answer to this question was resoundingly negative. The pitch itself was separated from supporters by a speedway track and in spite of safety recommendations that had vastly reduced its capacity from its heyday the scale of the stadium was such that even a crowd of 10,000 people way more than the club's average attendance at the time could easily appear lost on the vast terraces and seating areas. The stadium was no more popular amongst players who found that a playing surface that was acceptable for rugby league proved to be too heavy and uneven for association football. This unsuitability would manifest itself most publicly in September 1986, when Leeds United came to town. An improvement in behaviour led to the club's previous penalty being lifted for the 1986-87 season, but as the two teams met in the second division for the second year in a row, The decision not to introduce proper ticketing arrangements for such a local derby would prove to be a costly one. A crowd of over 13,000 people attended the match at Odsell and the behaviour of Leeds supporters that day seemed to indicate that any period of soul-searching that they'd undergone following the last day of the 1984-85 season was over. Situated at an end of the ground, which was part terracing and part grass bank, a day that had already been pockmarked with violence spiralled out of control when, with just 10 minutes of the match left to play and Bradford leading by two goals to nil, Leeds supporters attacked a temporary food stall which, in a hideous echo of the events of 16 months earlier at both Valley Parade and St Andrews, caught fire. The referee took the players from the pitch and sections of the Leeds support then attacked Bradford supporters in the main stand while others pelted missiles at the police and a fire service crew who had been called to deal with the fire the referee eventually brought the players back out at 5:30 to play out the last 10 minutes of the match in a near deserted stadium goodness only knows what this must have felt like for those who had been present at Bradford on the 11th of May 1985 by this time however Bradford City supporters were counting down the days before the Valley Parade was reopened. With oddsall such an unsatisfactory venue for league football, £2.6 million were put aside from insurance money, grants and from the club itself to completely redevelop two sides of the ground, including, of course, the site of the 1985 fire. The ground was officially reopened in December 1986 with an exhibition match against an England eleven, and a couple of weeks later, the ground returned to competitive action for a home match against Derby County. Ten days later, following a goalless draw with Birmingham City, Trevor Cherry, the manager of the club on the day of the fire, was sacked. He hasn't worked in football management since. Stafford Hegenbottom, the long-time chairman of the club who was in charge at the time of the fire, resigned his position at the start of 1988 and died in 1995.
3: Well, after a moment of hilarity with Terry Wogan and Bruce there, I'm afraid the news is very bad from Brussels. Hooliganism has struck again and I'm afraid the scenes are as bad as anything we've seen for a long, long time. People have been stretched off, Uh, the Liverpool supporters uh, took on the police at one point it's not certain whether any lives have been lost at this moment. Joe Fagan, um, with obviously tremendous sympathy um, with what was going on in his last match for Liverpool, went on the pitch uh, and appealed to the crowd saying, you know, this is my last match, please uh, behave yourselves. And it looks there as if they're getting some control of the scenes after I understood that uh, a wall collapsed at one point, which was the origination of some of the trouble and certainly the thing that may have caused those injuries. I'm not suggesting those injuries were caused or inflicted by crowds of either side. But uh, you can see the police there, uh, such typical pictures, we're extremely used to them over here. And uh, Peter Jones, uh, the BBC football correspondent, said probably some of the worst scenes that he has seen uh, at the football ground which speaks for itself but it does seem with the kick-off in uh, not all that many minutes time now if it should take place as if they are restoring some kind of order
1: in May 1985 Liverpool were the defending European champions having won the European Cup for a fourth time the year before defeating Roma in a penalty shootout in the final again they would face italian opposition Juventus, who had won the 1984 Cup Winners' Cup. They had a team consisting of many of Italy's 1982 World Cup winning team, and their playmaking midfielder, Michel Platini, was considered the best footballer in Europe at the time, having been named Footballer of the Year by France Football magazine for the second year in a row the previous December. Liverpool and Juventus were widely regarded to be the best two sides on the continent at the time, and they'd already contested the 1984 European Super Cup four months earlier, with Juventus winning by two goals to nil. Despite its status as Belgium's national stadium though, Heisel, the venue chosen for the match, was in a poor state of repair by the time of the 1985 European Cup final. The 55-year-old stadium had not been sufficiently maintained for several years, and large parts of it were literally crumbling. For example, one outer wall had been made of cinder block. It was later found that fans without tickets for this final were seen to be kicking holes in it to get in. Both Liverpool players and supporters later said that they were shocked at Heisel's abject condition, despite reports from Arsenal fans who'd visited several years earlier that the ground was a dump. That Heisel was chosen despite its poor condition especially since so many vastly superior venues were available all over Europe, including those in both Spain and France, which had been renovated for the 1982 World Cup and the 1984 European Championships, seemed to be a mystery to both clubs. The Juventus president, Gian Piero Boniperti, and the Liverpool CEO, Peter Robinson, both urged UEFA to choose another venue, Claiming that Heisel was not in any condition to host a European final, especially not a European final involving two clubs with such vast fan bases. UEFA, however, refused to consider a move. It was later discovered that their inspection of the stadium had lasted 30 minutes. Heisel was crammed full with around 60,000 supporters in attendance. The two ends behind the goals comprised all standing terraces with each end split into three zones, one for each group of supporters. However, part of the Liverpool area was occupied by neutrals, and this is thought to have heightened pre-match tensions. The idea of a large neutral area was opposed by both Liverpool and Juventus, as it would provide an opportunity for fans of both clubs to obtain tickets from agencies or from ticket outs outside the ground, and thus create a dangerous mixture of fans. At the time, Brussels, like the rest of Belgium, already had a large Italian community, and many expatriate Juventus fans bought tickets for the neutral section. Added to this, many tickets were bought up and sold by travel agents, mainly to Juventus supporters. A small percentage of the tickets ended up in the hands of Liverpool supporters. At approximately 7 o'clock local time, an hour before kick-off, an increasingly tense atmosphere deteriorated into chaos. The Liverpool supporters and Juventus supporters in sections X and Z stood merely yards apart. The boundary between the two was marked by a temporary chain-link fence and a central, thinly policed no-man's land. Hooligans began to throw stones across the divide, which they were able to pick up from the crumbling terraces beneath them. As kickoff approached, the throwing became more intense. Several groups of Liverpool hooligans broke through the boundary between the two sections, overpowered a weak police response and charged at the Juventus fans. The fans began to flee towards the perimeter rule of Section Z, the neutral section. The wall could not withstand the force of the fleeing Juventus supporters and the lower part of it collapsed. Contrary to reports at the time, The collapse of the wall did not cause the 39 deaths. Instead, the collapse relieved pressure and allowed fans to escape. Most died of suffocation after tripping or being crushed against the wall before the collapse. A further 600 fans were also injured. Bodies were carried out from the stadium on sections of iron fencing and laid outside, covered with giant football flags. As police and medical helicopters flew in, the downdrafts blew away the modest coverings. In retaliation for the events of Section Z, some Juventus fans rioted at their end of the stadium. They advanced down the stadium running track to help other Juventus supporters, but police interventions stopped the advance. A large group of Juventus fans also fought the police with rocks, bottles and stones for two hours. One Juventus fan was even seen to be firing a starting gun at the police. By the time the BBC went over to commentator Barry Davis in Brussels, it was clear that something had gone very wrong indeed.
4: Well, for the last 50 minutes, the Heysel Stadium in Brussels, the capital of Belgium, has been a sickening and bewildering sight. As a result, there is for certain serious injury when a wall collapsed and maybe worse. I've seen at least two stretchers carried away and the stretchers were covered from head to foot. To give you the evidence of my own eyes, the situation as I saw it, at the left end of the stadium were supporters of both Liverpool and Juventus. They were divided by two long poles in various sections poles over which it was quite easy to climb under which it was quite easy to move and after a while supporters of Liverpool moved into the Juventus area for a while there were some scuffles between the rival supporters a great deal of the sort of threatening animal hate-like behaviour which we've become all too accustomed to seeing at home And then a lot of the Juventus supporters decided the time had come to move away. And they moved away with such pace and in such numbers. And in moving down towards the track that surrounds this ground here at the Heysel Stadium, a wall collapsed and certainly there were people pinned underneath the wall. I should say it is quite a small wall of no more than about four feet in height. And there were a number of barriers in front of the wall and around the wall. So one can only hope that the injuries are not as serious as are being reported.
1: Despite the scale of the disaster, UEFA officials, Belgian Prime Minister Wilfried Martens, Brussels Mayor Hervé Bruin, and the city's police force all felt that abandoning the match would have risked inciting further violence. So it eventually kicked off at 8.15 local time, after the captains of both teams spoke to the crowd and appealed for calm. Juventus won by a goal to nil, thanks to a penalty scored by Michel Platini, awarded for a foul against Zbigniew Boniek. It was their first European Cup, a trophy that the old lady of Turin had long coveted. But the celebrations after the trophy award were jarring, to say the least. It is, however, arguable that the players were unaware of the scale of the tragedy during the match and in its immediate aftermath. The reputation of English football supporters, which had been deteriorating for more than a decade, now lay in tatters, and all concerned in Brussels, the mayor of the city, the police, and UEFA themselves, were very quick to apportion the blame solely to Liverpool supporters.
0: I tell you, I will never again go see my team play football.
4: I, I'm, I'm Italian, I would like to say to all the English people, that they are very famous in the world for their education and self-control and so on. We have now the proof that all over in the continent everybody say don't be like English. You know people. what I said now? Not tell the
0: truth, Liverpool Steam, then you know what I mean? Might as well tell the truth. You know what i have mean? seen Liverpool, Liverpool attack all the time and they'd done done all Italians in and the wall collapsed because there was the police just was too scared to go and get into the Liverpool fans. That's all there was to
3: it.
2: As day broke, it was apparent how little effect the flimsy barriers had had in protecting a panicking crowd. Among the jumble of discarded horns and banners, the crumbled remains of a few concrete posts. Though most Liverpool fans departed quickly and discreetly, several hundred were still to be found this morning in Brussels Central Station. The mood was sober and subdued.
0: We never thought like a game involving Liverpool would ever result in supporters actually being killed. I mean, I phoned fo- I home, that's how I found out. Yeah. I mean, imagine everyone's family back home is really worried. I know my mum was like, and she told me, said, you know, it's just like war on television. And she said it mm-hmm. was about 30 seconds. And, and you weren't aware of this? No, we didn't know anybody was dead. Well, you, it just happened
2: so quick. I mean, the supporters... Well, It, I just, uh, it was the, the minority again, the supporters, that ran over to cause trouble. And around. Italians just panicked. You must blame the Liverpool supporters, how they started the, the trouble, but it all started How the Juventus supporters have tickets for our end. I'll never go again. I've watched Liverpool, I've watched Liverpool for 30 odd years. There's no way I'll go again.
0: No way. I'm just ashamed. It's all disgrace.
1: Disasters of this scale, however seldom come about because of one single cause. And while the behaviour of Liverpool's supporters that evening was utterly reprehensible, there were those who felt that the haste with which everybody in a position of authority moved to point the finger of blame solely to one fairly easily marginalised group of people was unseemly. The extent to which English football supporters could cause disruption at matches was well known, but none of that answered the question of why this particular tragedy happened in this particular stadium at this particular time. If it had been going on for years, and it had, why should this match have resulted in the death of almost 40 people? An inquiry was launched into the events of that evening, but that didn't mean that Liverpool supporters weren't partly culpable for what happened, and by extension, this meant English football in a broader sense. Two days after the disaster, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher asked the FA to withdraw English teams from European competition before they were banned. But two days later, UEFA banned English clubs anyway for an indeterminate period of time.
4: After Brussels, the world shuts the door on English clubs. Today, the governing body FIFA registered their disgust over the events at Brussels by banning English clubs from all internationals.
2: It had been a night of shame and by imposing sanctions, FIFA was conscious of its duties and responsibilities and would spare no effort to build up the image of world football
1: again. On the 6th of June, FIFA extended this ban to all worldwide matches, but this was modified a week later to allow friendly matches outside Europe to take place. In December 1985, FIFA also announced that English clubs were free to play friendly games inside Europe, though the Belgian government banned any English clubs from playing in their country. Though the English national team was not subjected to any bans, English club sides were banned indefinitely from European club competitions, with Liverpool being provisionally subject to a further three-year suspension as well. In April 1990, following years of campaigning from the English football authorities, UEFA confirmed the reintroduction of English clubs, with the exception of Liverpool, into its competitions again from the 1990-91 season on. In April 1991... UEFA's executive committee voted to allow Liverpool back into European competition from the nineteen ninety-one ninety-two season on. In the end, all English clubs served a five-year ban, while Liverpool were excluded for six years. On the thirtieth of May nineteen eighty-five, UEFA official observer Gunter Schneider said, "Only Liverpool fans were responsible. Of that, there is no doubt." UEFA. The organizer of the event, the owners of the Heysel Stadium, and the Belgian police were investigated for culpability. After an 18-month-long investigation, the dossier of Belgian judge Marina Copeters was finally published. It concluded that blame should rest solely with the Liverpool fans. The British police undertook a thorough investigation to bring to justice the perpetrators. 17 minutes of film and many still photographs were examined. The ITV television documentary series TVI also produced an hour-long programme featuring the footage, and the British press also published the photographs. A total of 34 people were arrested and questioned, with 26 Liverpool fans being charged with manslaughter, the only extraditable offence applicable to events at Heiselt. An extradition hearing in London in February-March to 1987 ruled all 26 were to be extradited to stand trial in Belgium for the death of Juventus fan Mario Ronchi. In September 1987, they were extradited and formally charged with manslaughter applying to all 39 deaths and further charges of assault. Initially, all were held at a Belgian prison but over the subsequent months, Judge permitted their release as the start of the trial became ever more delayed. The trial eventually got underway in October 1988, with three Belgians also standing trial for their role in the disaster. Albert Rusens, the head of Belgium Football Association, for allowing tickets to the Liverpool section of the stadium to be sold to Juventus fans and two police officers who were in charge of policing at the stadium that night. Two of the 26 Liverpool fans were in custody in Britain at the time and stood trial later. In April 1989, 14 fans were convicted and given three-year sentences that were half suspended for five years, allowing them to return to the UK. UEFA, however, also had their part to play in what happened that night. They did, after all, select a crumbling stadium to hold the event. Fans were able to pick up rocks from the terracing to hurl at each other, whilst an investigation carried out on behalf of the British government concluded that the deaths could be considered attributable in no small part to the appalling state of the stadium. The crush barriers were unable to contain the weight of the crowd and had their reinforcement in the concrete exposed while the walls' piers had been built the wrong way around. Furthermore, their decision to allow a third of the tickets for the Liverpool end to be sold in a neutral section was also, to say the least, ill-judged. By the summer of 1985, though, English football was in no position to take the moral high ground over anything related to crowd management or stadium safety. The reaction of every authority had been woefully misplaced. When hooliganism started to rise, containment became the only priority of those in charge. The fences went up, which went some way towards keeping violence off the pitch, but did little to address the broader issues which had led to its rise in the first place. Faced with stagnant revenues and falling attendances, clubs had allowed their homes to rot, an insufficient and badly thought-out regulation coupled with enforcement of that regulation that was barely worthy of the name, had led to grounds becoming tinderboxes, quite literally in the case of Bradford City. And the Heysel Stadium disaster had been the conclusion to a disease that had festered in plain view over the previous decade and a half. As the game in this country entered the 1985-86 season, there were serious questions to be asked over whether professional football in this country, as we come to understand it, even could continue.
0: Park the car at the side of the road You should know Time's tide will smother you And I will too When you left about people Feel so very lonely Their only desire is to die But I'm afraid It doesn't make me
4: smile I wish I could laugh
0: listening to this 200% podcast Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes Find us on Facebook by searching 200% Or on Twitter at 2WOHP Be good to each other And grow us.